What do you call that noise? What do you call that noise? Welcome back to What Do You Call That Noise, the XTC podcast, and the second instalment of a conversation to celebrate 45 years of white music. XTC's debut album was released on the 20th of January 1978, and we've been looking back to life in Swindon, Britain, and the world back then. Hello, I'm Mark Fisher, and I'll be giving you more of that in a short while. But first, we have a new feature for 2023, which we started last month, and it's all about you, the listeners paying tribute to XDC with your own songs. Last month, we heard from John Bicknell, whose song Scissor Girl made nods not only to Scissor Man, but also My Bird Performs, Love on a Farm Boy's Wages, and more. Watch out, here she comes, yeah, it's a scissor girl. Watch out, she'll cut you up, yeah, she's a scissor girl. She's gonna cut you up. This month, it's the turn of Warren Butson, who is here to tell us about clock watching. What do you call that noise? Hi, Mark, and hello to everybody listening to What Do You Call That Noise? My name is Warren, and I'm from the band Helter Skelter. And here just to tell you a bit about the track we did, which is called Clock Watching. I have been a fan since I heard Generals and Majors, and that was when it came out, and I rushed out to the shops and bought that. And then rushed out and bought Black Sea. And I just thought, oh my God, this is like the Beatles' new wave. So um, this track's taken about 30 years to get to be recorded, which is a bit weird. But um, all many years ago, about 86, I was doing a job that was really quite dull. And um, that's when this song came to mind. Probably Day In, Day Out was a big influence. But musically... Uh, myself and Simon, the other guy who wrote the song, we were both big fans of, of the English settlement sound. That you know, People say that's the XTC pastoral period, but I disagree. I think you've got this absolute thwack from Terry Chambers with coupling with these 12 strings. Uh, to me, that's a quite a unique sound. I loved it. But anyway, so we recorded this track, but didn't actually... No, we didn't record it. We wrote it and then didn't finish it off, and the band split up before we properly did. And, you know, you move on to other bands and, and, and it never, you know, just sat in the corner. Um, many years later, about 2016, um, I'm getting to Prog again. I was into Prog at the time of um, XTC. And I hear this band called Big Big Train do a track called uh, Fat Billy Shouts Mine. And I'm going, oh, my God, that sounds like XTC meets Genesis. That's brilliant. So I rushed out and got it. And lo and behold... The guitarist is Dave Gregory. I couldn't believe it. I was thinking, thank God he's still out there doing it. And wow, he sounds brilliant. So anyway, that reinvigorated my interest in XDC. I started listening to all the XDC songs again and um, just really thinking, I want to write again like that. And uh, I reminded Simon, we've got this track we never finished off. And so he said, right, well, let's finish it off. So the band with us finished the song. We created Clock Watching. And now that's the track that you hear here.
What an absolute exciting period of my life it was listening to XTC around Black Sea and English Settlement. For those of you who got into them later on, you missed out on the, the huge excitement of getting their records, their singles, because every single was an event. They, they, the designs of them were brilliant. Often they'd be double singles. There certainly would be more than one B-side or extended versions on 12-inch. And, and the, the artwork was just amazing. Uh, you know, got dioramas, you've got a pack of postcards stuck to just brilliant. So thank you, XTC, particularly Andy, for making it so exciting to go out and rush to my record shop to get my single. What do you call that noise? Thank you very much for that, Warren Butson. That was clock watching. Thanks, Warren. If you're a musician and you've written something inspired by XTC in some way, I'd love to hear from you. And your music doesn't necessarily have to sound like XTC, although it could do, but perhaps it has some lyrical, thematic, rhythmic or melodic connection. If you've got something that fits the bill, please get in touch with me at mark at xtclimelight.com. Now, a quick shout out to the fabulous supporters on Patreon whose donations keep the XTC podcast running. They are they are all tremendous human beings, and if you are feeling tremendous, it'd be, it'd be great, and I'd be delighted if you would show your support as well. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Mark Fisher, and when you're there, you can decide whether you'd like to be a pink thing, a humble daisy, or a knight in shining karma. And if it's the latter, I'll read out your name at the end of each episode. If you keep meaning to buy a copy of What Do You Call That Noise, an XDC discovery book, and haven't got round to it, well, what are you waiting for? Head straight away to xdclimelight.com and order your copy. So to the second part of our conversation to mark 45 years of white music. In the January episode of What Do You Call That Noise, the XTC podcast, we heard from some of the fans, journalists, and photographers who were witness to XTC as they exploded onto the scene. We heard Tony Mitchell, who was an editorial staffer on Sounds from 1975 to 1987 and went with XTC to Hamburg and Japan. I wanted to present them as as a fun band, very serious about their music, but you know, um, very witty and entertaining and, and intelligent and off the wall in other ways. You know, not not like any other band that I'd met at that time. 
We heard Jill Fermanovsky, the photographer who travelled to Hamburg with Tony in 1978 and did a couple of publicity sessions with XTC over the years. You know, you've got David Byrne laughing and Tina, I think Andy Partridge has got Tina's foot in his mouth. Um, I mean, it, it looks it looks like a proper rock and roll knees up. We heard Beverly Glick, who under her pseudonym of Betty Page, was a staff writer for Sounds in the late 1970s and wrote about XTC in New York in 1980. I played a set with my band at a pub in North London and then we went to see the end of XTC's set. And didn't I at some point get up on stage and sing backing vocals with them? We heard Paul Burgess, who grew up in Swindon and saw XTC many times at the Affair Club and elsewhere in Swindon. I mean, it was just kind of run of the mill. You just went to see your local band at that time. And our local band, for me and Andy, was XTC. And they played pretty much every other week. And we heard Andy Poulton, another Swindon fan who picked up on XTC with the release of the 3D EP. And so I put 3D EP on and I looked up and the school caretaker um, was standing at the standing at the door just looking us up and down. And I thought, mm, that's just a bit weird. And as it finished, he just sauntered over to the little stage we were on and he just said, do you like that, boys? And I said, yeah, absolutely. He went, my son's in that band. Here is what they said next. <laughs> Jill, I'm, I'm just wondering as a photographer, is it necessary for you... Uh, this is a two-part question, either to like the band as people or be to like them as, as, as musicians. Do you have to like the music to, to take decent pictures of them? Hmm, that's an interesting question. I, I, I think it's much more important for me to like them than mm. their music. I, don't, I haven't had a great deal to do with the music, really. Um, so, and often when I'm shooting at gigs, I haven't a clue what they're playing or... You know, I, I can pick up the atmosphere, you know, I'm totally tuned into the vibrations between them in, on the stage and the audience and them. But as to what's actually coming into my ears, I almost have to filter it out because I'm, I've got other things I need to be talking about in my head, you know, which is to do with the camera equipment or compositions and, you know, or, or where to be for the, you know, where to get, where to position myself and so on. So I would say... There's been many musicians I've worked with where I haven't heard a note they played, but might have heard them being interviewed and thought, I must photograph that person. That's a really interesting person, mm -hmm. um, including, say, Amy Winehouse or, or um, Sinead O'Connor as well as another one. I just heard her being interviewed and I just thought, she's fascinating, you know, she's she's a character. And um, with the band, similarly, I might not, or I might be sent just some sort of promo thing, but not listen to it more than once and just get a sort of vibe about it so I think yes it's less important that I like their music than that I have some sort of connection with them personally. Mm -hmm. That sounds very similar to what I know on Bev's website you talk about finding the story that everybody has whether they're famous or not famous but uh, that 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 rings true about Sinead, someone like Sinead O'Connor who is obviously a fascinating person whose story you would want to tell whether it's visually or as a journalist or or, or, or whatever. Um, was, yes, 100%. Yeah. And, and was, that, was that what you were trying to do even on those early, you know, in your early forays into journalism in, in the late 70s? Tell those stories. Yeah, I mean, it's that's a bit of a hindsight observation for me, really. It's, it's after all these years looking back on what I was doing at the time and what was really meaningful for me in interviewing these musicians. 
it was about telling their story. And a lot of them were not very good at press. This was way before anybody had media training or anything resembling it. So a lot of bands, this is why Tony <laughs> used to get on with them so well, because he could talk about guitars and drums or bass uh, or keyboards. And, and most of the, uh, the bands at that time, they only wanted to talk about the mechanics of making a record or they didn't want to talk about anything else, really. And they weren't very good at talking about. I mean, there were some exceptions, of course, and I would put XTC in that category. They they were reflective. They were smart, reflective. They knew instinctively what made a great quote. I mean, you really didn't have to try very hard to get a good piece out of them. But a lot of the bands at that time weren't really interested in talking about anything but being in the studio, which was frankly not very interesting a lot of the time. So I was always kind of trying to tease out something a bit more personal um, to varying degrees of success. But that that was always what I was aiming at. There's also there is a D, bands have DNAs, you know, there's a yeah. DNA, I think. And when you change one member, the, there's a kind of a change in the DNA as well. That there's a sort of chemistry. That's why you don't have to have the very best musician on every instrument. You know, you can have, you know, you don't want to have that almost. You need to have some recessive, some going forward. You need somebody taking charge. You need, there's some dynamic that I call a DNA that, that the bands have. And um, and XTC had a particular one, actually. They really, And it also came from where they came from. And actually, they've stayed there, haven't they? Which is also very interesting. They haven't moved. Like Oasis couldn't wait to get out of Manchester. They were no sooner had a, you know, a few quid in their pocket, and they all rushed to London. I think Bonehead has possibly gone back now. But they, you know, whereas whereas XTC and some of the, you know, they've stayed not too far from their roots, and so where they came from also had a, played a part in in their chemistry. Yeah, and definitely then you then hear that in their later music that in particular that it makes absolute sense that they're a band from a small town that's very near the countryside and, you know, you hear that in in all sorts of songs and it makes a lot of sense as soon as you, you know, physically go to the place and think, oh, yeah, of course, this is where it comes from. They're not a London band. That's quite it's important for them not to be that thing or a Birmingham band or a Manchester band. They are one of those rare Swindon bands. Also an English band, um, you know, they're very, very proud of, of, of you know, their, the way that they sort of absorbed and, and put out a distinctly English culture. And, and you know, that, again, that might sound like a, a racist statement these days, but it really wasn't. It was just about the identity of the music. And how it was primarily influenced by, you know, the the English town experience, and n- people weren't trying. Nobody in the band was trying to be an American, you know, which is a, v- a very. And uh, I, I mean, at punk also, um, of course, kind of to a large extent rejected, um, you know, the American a- aspects of uh, of uh, of popular music and rock or whatever, and and. Uh, you know, British punk was very British, I think, you know. I was thinking about this this kind of, um, you know, what XTC might have been listening to at the time for inspiration. And there was a band that I saw a few times at the same time called Bebop Deluxe. Oh, yeah. I'm sure were a huge influence on, oh, on yes. Andy and on XTC. Also Cockney Rebel, Steve Harley. Um, they were kind of like the New York Dolls meets Bebop Deluxe meets 
uh, dub reggae. I mean, it's something that's not often talked about with XTC is, and I can distinctly remember being in these really small clubs in Swindon, and there was there was so much dub influence that would come when you see XTC live in 1977, 78. Um, there were many examples. Um, yeah, the most obvious one is All Along the Watchtower. When they played All, All Along the Watchtower live, it would often take 15 mm. minutes, 20 minutes to get through that song because when it got to the, the breakdown, the, the sound engineer would go into a sort of five or 10-minute dub section where it would just be drums, bass, and Andy's voice um, for maybe five minutes or so. And it kind of reminded you of, I don't know, there were records at the time like um, David Essex, you know, Rock On, or there were this kind of... Um, a lot of scar singles were getting through, and and I'm sure. I mean, I I've never spoken to Andy about it, but I'm sure reggae must have been such a huge part. Well, I mean, uh, there of what was they were listening to. There was with the early releases of Go To a companion twelve inch that was all dub anyway, wasn't yep. there? Yeah. Go Plus. Yeah. yeah. Um, Jill, after the Hamburg um, trip, you you as I said before, you then went into a, the studio with them. You did some studio work with them. Um, that was that just a question of one thing leading to another, or did did you have a do you did you have a particular affection for XTC? <laughs> I had a particular affection for them. Yeah, I mean they were delightful and they were really fun to work with. As I said, Storm Thorgerson, who did their second album cover, was a good friend of mine. He was very intrigued by them as well, and they loved his. The more bizarre his ideas, the more they liked it. The record company weren't so keen, but they were. Um, so, yeah, and um, I'm just looking at some um, of my thing here. So I've, I did them I did them in, um, looks like Kew Gardens, yeah. about 1978 or something. Then Dave Gregory joined them. Um, so I did a shoot with him. And then I also did, in 1998, I did Andy and Colin in, Swin- in Swindon. Oh, that's you as well, is it? Yeah, yeah. Um, and they and they provided props, a bit like Tom Waits actually would provide bizarre props when he did a shoot, um, a pitchfork, and um, a kind of um, various flowers and uh, a sort of uh, um, um, you know sort of handicap caps and so on. You know they 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 provided the props. They they did the job. They they did remind me a little bit of Tom Waits actually in that kind of slightly zany, unpredictable. Um, presentation. Yeah, and I wonder whether, because uh, Dave Gregory said that whenever Andy Partridge wrote a song, whether it was going to be an album or not, he was he was always nervous. Um, nervous is the wrong word, but he was always ready for it to be a single. So every single time he wrote a song, he had a visual conception of what it was going to look like on the single sleeve for it, because he thinks wow. in such visual terms. And I would have thought that would be uh, it was fascinating detail that you've just said about them bringing the the, the pitchfork along, or whatever, because they're. It, it, clearly he's thinking in visual terms he's sort of not exactly doing your job for you but uh, but helping you with your job oh no absolutely yeah and and um you know just even the way he reacts to the camera andy that is and uh and colin as well i mean they they were a very very nice band to work with and and actually andy's a front man isn't he i mean that's another thing is it you you need a front man <laughs> you need somebody who's gonna sort of um you know, you've got to hog the limelight. You've got to, you've got to embrace the spotlight. Um, you have to have a feeling for it. Without that, then there's a little bit of lack in the DNA. So, you know, he did bring that to the mix. I should think, Paul, you probably found that too when you were when you were shooting. So, they they had a 
they had quite a lot going for them, that lot, really. Yeah. Um, I suppose I don't think of them as being sort of mainstream um, in the sense that they are what you would now call an, or would have been called a few years ago an indie band, aren't they? Because they basically were not working with commercial thoughts in mind particularly. Or maybe they did, but they weren't um, pandering to that and they weren't sort of touring America for two years or, or doing that sort of thing. So they've they've maintained... Um, their integrity, their musical integrity, and um, and and are still rooted in what started them off in the first place, which means that, you know, as long as they're around, they, they should be able to keep making really great contribution to, you know, the history of rock music, I think. Yeah, well, we certainly think so. <laughs> but thank you for that, Jill. You're uh, welcome. Paul, do you have any photographer-related questions for, for Jill? Just keep working, Jill. Um, let's see many more oh, thank of your you. wonderful photos. I've got. I'm doing a 50-year <laughs> retrospective exhibition in Manchester next year in April. Lord help me, I'm going to have to go and uh, try and look through 50 years worth of work. Well, I won't be able to, but I must make sure to put XTC in there. Oh yeah, definitely. That's we'll come for and sure. See. You yeah. know, I must. Yeah. I must stick. It, they, they'll have to find. That's a, in Manchester next year. Yes, yes, yes. Absolutely. Uh, for for three months in the Manchester Central Library. So. Um, yeah, I better get on with it, hadn't I, really? And a documentary's been made on my archive of work as well. So at uh, nearly 70, um, I'm sort of, I haven't quite slowed down yet. And the, do- <laughs> the docu- I noticed that you mentioned the documentary, or you mentioned the documentary on your website. Is, is, have you got a dead, uh, date for that, a release date for that? Um, I don't. I think it's nearly finished, though. You know, mm-hmm. I've interviewed the, the various rock stars and um, put some pictures in and, and so on and so on. It, it, it's looking quite good, I think. It'll be interesting. Um, the final bit is getting the music rights and all that sort of thing. I think that's the point where it's That'll be now. the hardest bit. <laughs> yeah, really hard, yeah, really hard. It'll be very expensive, I think, yeah. And yeah. they don't own their music anymore, do they, a lot of these musicians? They've mm. sold it off, so I can't ring them up and go, can I have that song for nothing, please? So, yeah. So, yeah, and also the other thing is that Rock Archive, the collective of photographers, I mean, um, that may be worth a mention just because it's a, you know, it's a a portal to rock photography. Mm-hmm. And you set that up, uh, didn't Paul, you? Paul, you're very welcome to join us if you ever want to. We, we only They only make prints and it's, their tw- it's our 25th anniversary next year. I'm not too sure how long I can keep it going, actually, because it was never profitable. But I do think because we don't have a rock and roll museum or, or anything in the UK that it kind of suffices as at least a place where people can go to find out about the genre. And um, and I've kind of done my best with, with, with the genre and with, you know... Um, and once again, I want to just pay homage to Tony Mitchell for giving me a break as the oh. technical <laughs> photographer for the technical pages. Or I might still be in the Rainbow Theatre in the pit, you know, with, oh. the, with, the, with the religious <laughs> organisation that is there now. <laughs> You're very welcome, Jill. You're very welcome. Maybe a related question for you, Tony, to do with what Jill was just talking about, actually liking the band. Um, I, I find it both heartening and fascinating that of all the millions of bands that you could have, and this applies to Bev as well, that that, that you have written about over the years, um, that you're still at least interested in in, in this band called XTC. What do you think it, it is that even made you want to be part of this podcast? It was partly uh, serendipity, I think, uh, in terms of discovering the um, Twitter page that, uh, uh, what's it called? Um That's the one, yeah, Sounds Clips, which I hadn't been aware of. And discovering that and discovering that some of my stuff was on it and uh, and included XTC reviews, it it just kind of 
made me remember how important they were to me. I mean, they, they were a very influential uh, on me uh, in, that, uh, in that whole period that I was writing about them, you know. Um, so it, it just seemed, uh, you know, when, when, I, when we connected um, and, and talked about this, I, I kind of offered my services, didn't I? But just, just <laughs> I before, took you up on it. All right. <laughs> just, yeah, and you took me up on it, which was very kind. And it's like I just felt I had to do it because, you know, I, I, I was involved with some fairly important aspects of their, of their sort of development. And, um, you know, I, I just remember them with such, you know, great affection. And just, and just picking up on that point that Jill made about them not really um, wanting to be commercial or, or at least not, not, uh, commercial unless it was on their own terms sort of thing i i do remember i think it was andy um when we were talking about how some somebody single on virgin possibly had been uh, bought into the charts um you know at a high position you, you know um allegedly um and i i, I remember andy or possibly colin saying oh i wish someone would do that with us you know <laughs> so they weren't definitely not against the idea of of uh, you know being of having chart success but you know I, I, they, I don't think they they weren't prepared to play by anyone else's rules to do that although they did play by the sort of touring rules because they were a very very busy touring band and I think I think that might have I mean it honed them as performers but it might also have you know drained or diverted some of their creative energy that they might have prepared to spend you know in the studio sort of thing um and before I forget I don't want to deny you the opportunity to uh, make the connection between um Andy Partridge and and your latter career as a fetishista <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was coming up um yeah um you know there was an early clue um in one of the one well, XTC songs Atom Age which um, the the lyrics are quite innocent, but there was a you know a famous fetish magazine called Atom Age. Oh, is that um, right? Which preceded Skin Two, really. Atom Age was the sort of older generation, and Skin Two was well, it wasn't quite like the punks coming along. It was a bit. It was a bit. Uh, more sophisticated in in some ways than that, but Skin Two was was what happened after after Atom Age and. Uh, at the time, I, I just actually reread the lyrics before um, speaking here, and um, there's absolutely nothing that suggests any kind of fetishism. But then in the minibus uh, on the way from uh, on the way to Hamburg um, for that uh, for that talking that talking heads and XTC gig, um, Andy produced this um, magazine. Um, it was one of these, it was one of these, what they call sort of gummy magazines, which is uh, German for rubber, basically. And he bought a rubber fetish magazine, which was just pictures. And, um, and his favorite picture was, uh, uh, was of a man in a cockerel hood, a uh, cockerel mask, as he would have called it, but it was, it was a hood and uh, a latex cockerel hood. You know, very, very detailed, very impressive. I'd never seen anything like it before, although I was, you know, I was aware of sort of fetish imagery um, pretty, pretty much by that time. Uh, but 
I hadn't seen anything like this. I didn't, you know, because uh, there were problems with seeing this kind of fetish material legally in the UK at that time. Um, so, so uh, cockerel masks were quite frequently mentioned. Uh, I seem to recall uh, on that trip, um, and it, it sort of. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this at this point that I recognised that um, you know fetish imagery had obviously played some part in in Andy's upbringing, <laughs> <laughs> and there's another t a story that he told me in in Tokyo, um, which is which is certainly not for family consumption, but it uh, <laughs> it um, it confirmed to me that um, he was probably a fellow traveller, shall we say you know, um, in, in that area. And, um, uh, you know, why shouldn't he be, you know? I mean, it's pretty popular these days. <laughs> <laughs> who, who would have guessed that? So uh, we, have, we could fast forward a little bit to, to you, Bev, in New York. Uh, what was that trip like? Well, it was, it was, I was just reading it again before we, before we started the podcast. Uh, available on rocksbackpages.com, by the way, if anyone wants to know, uh, if anyone wants to subscribe. Um, so it was pretty much exactly 42 years ago that I was in New York because it was just after John Lennon had been shot. And of course, what what were XTC doing? They were making jokes about it. <laughs> of course they were. <laughs> Because the piece actually starts with guess who? Guess who? Elvis Presley, Bonzo, and Ian Curtis are expecting for Christmas. <laughs> you know the answer. <laughs> um, so again, it was their humour that just carried me along. I mean, I think it was, if not the first, definitely one of the first foreign on the road trips that I'd done. Because I started on staff at sounds that summer and um i had i remember i'd given bl the uh, black sea five stars when that came out because it was just after that wasn't it so and i remember i i very naughtily reviewed it a week early and got in trouble with our clerk <laughs> <laughs> um but he still uh, gave me the go ahead to go to new york with them uh, i can't remember if he came with us or not um, but anyway, so pretty much everything Tony has said applies to the trip to New York, really. Um, <laughs> just the, the level of wit, the level of wordplay. It was like, and Andy, Andy seemed to always be, be playing four dimensional mental gymnastics stroke chess, always anticipating the next quip, the next one liner, but. Still, as you say, Mark, one of the funniest people I have ever met in my life. <laughs> uh, but they were all funny. It wasn't just Andy, as you as you've all said. It was it was all of them that were funny. And I remember when I came back, I they they used to have like their own language practically. And um, I remember kind of putting together this little sort of <laughs> guide to XCC speak, <laughs> and the um, the. Uh, the reviews editor at the time, Jeff Barton, who was um, subbing the piece, was like, just thought this was ridiculous and threw it out. But I wish I still had that. <laughs> yeah, that'd I'm be sure fantastic. It would have been hilarious. But um, um, yeah, it's interesting reading it again because it kind of echoes what what others have said about 
you know, they were touring. It says in this piece that they feel like they hadn't really stopped touring since 1977. Yeah, yeah. And if you look, there's a page, uh, website called Optimism's Flames that has a list of all the gigs that they ever played. <laughs> God, I mean, it's and it's just, just incredible, it's like you think, really. Like, if they have any time off, that's basically when they're writing the next and recording the next album, and then yeah. they're, they're back on again. It's phenomenal. Oh, it was. I mean, I think that that was true of a lot of bands of that era, uh, but particularly XTC, and it did really hone them incredibly. Mm-hmm. Although, um, reading the the article again, the, the first gig that I saw them play on Long Island was not great. <laughs> uh, but they, uh, by the time they did their major gig there, they uh, they sharpened up and did a really good gig. Um, so, can you remember what was not great yeah. about it? Um, it, <laughs> I just don't. I think they were tired. They were tired. They were they were homesick. They were a bit pissed off. Uh, they'd just seen the sleeve of Sergeant Rock, and they they thought it had been completely botched. And you know, given Andy's artistic, visual artistic sensibilities, that probably did not sit well with him at all. So I think that that was why they they just didn't. They were not in a good space, so that that was just a bit. The show was just a bit lackluster, and they they just lost their long term time sound man, Steve Warren, after an argument with their manager. So there were a lot of things going on there. <laughs> um, uh, but it's interesting, what Tony, what you were saying about looking looking back at your past articles and thinking, oh God, was that me that wrote this? I mean, yeah. I quite often think that, um, <laughs> and the things that were the list uh, included in the list of, of things that um, nobody would say now <laughs> is um, Andy Andy uh, Partridge describing uh, uh, groupies as elephant dogs. I mean, it was just quite extraordinary. <laughs> Some of the things that was that was okay to say in in uh, in the late seventies, early eighties. Mm. Um, but yeah, my my memory of that was was just non-stop laughter I mean and I I just I knew that they would I would never have a problem uh getting a good quote out of them but also just to say as well is that they I got I mean we Tony and I both got on with a lot of different bands but it was different with XTC I'm sure Tony would agree with that but it they they did feel like they really felt like friends in a way that other bands didn't would you agree with that tony i certainly would yes and i'd also like to just refer back to uh paul mentioning bill nelson because both bev and yeah. i became very uh good friends with bill and um the, the, we were a sort of conduit for a while between him and xtc and when i reviewed the first Red Noise album, Bill's first sort of breakaway album after Bebop Deluxe. Um, I actually did mention in the review that I thought that he, you know, um, in the nicest possible way, nicked some ideas from XTC. And and uh, there was definitely a great mutual um, admiration between Andy and Bill. And um, one in, in, interesting little little uh, aside is that on the uh, on the Japanese trip that I went on with XTC, I sent Bill a postcard, um, and um, the next single he put out, um, the B side was uh, Tony goes to Tokyo 
and rides the bullet train. So, you know, my, my trip with XTC was, you know, musically uh, celebrated by Bill. Immort- so, immortalized. You know, and immortalized, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, can't, you know, you can't ask for more. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Should we? I'm, I'm, I'm. Also, we've just fast forwarded a little bit. Should we fast back? What's the reverse of of fast forwarding? Rewind. Rewind is the word yes. I'm looking for. <laughs> um, and and to that to get a bit more of a sense of the scene in Swindon um, that Paul and Andy were part of. It as we've said already, Swindon small town. Maybe not that much going on. You were in bands. In fact, both of you were in bands. Uh, was there, did it feel like there was a scene? Did everybody? Did anyone pay any attention to XTC or Helium Kids or whatever they were at that point? What 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 did it feel like at the time? I, I mean, there, I think there was a hell of a scene, as Paul said. Um, you know, with the affair and the Brunel rooms, we were lucky enough to get a lot of big bands playing before they became big. You know, I've I've recently produced or written, tried to capture a list of all the bands that I went to because I've got no memorabilia at all and and I've got no memory, really, apart from the bands that that I saw. Um, And, you know, we've had, I mean, I remember, and in fact it was in 1978, Talking Heads came to town. Oasis. And when I went to see Talking Heads, they were in a, a slightly larger venue than one of the small clubs. They were playing... Um, the Oasis, which had quite a big badminton stroke general sports hall. So it echoed like, I'll delete the expletive. Um, and for a big band, I mean, I'd heard on John Peel, um, Psycho Killer, and had fallen in love with the band. And so I was desperate to go and see them. But there was no big crush to get to the front. And I can remember going to the front and sitting on the floor waiting. And they had a support act as most bands do, and the support act I'd also fallen in love with through John Peel because I'd heard one of their singles that was released and then released again and then released again. And it was a little band. Um, you might have heard, heard heard of them. They 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 were a band called, what are they called? Um, dire, <laughs> dire, Dire Straits, that's it, in 1978. Um, but there was, and the thing about going back to the affair was it didn't matter what musical genre you liked, you were welcomed because you were a fan of music. Um, you'd get all, you know, you'd get punch, you'd get skins, you'd get oh, rockers. The whole gamut would turn up, but I can never remember there being any trouble, despite some of the bands that were playing there, as Paul mentioned, having quite aggressive reputations. I mean, and, and then coming back to the Brunel Rooms, I can remember seeing the jam play and there being being a punk issue with spitting and Weller saying, you know, if you don't stop your effing spitting, we're off. And who was the bass? I can't remember the bass player now. Bruce Foxton. Bruce Foxton. Yes. And the, the stage was probably about that tall. So there wasn't much to leap off, but just leapt into the stage and started wielding his bass like a club. And the roadies had to drag him back on stage. But, you know, the spitting stopped. <laughs> Um, and then the Stranglers played the Oasis and they had an issue with spitting. And I'd just like to say, um, RIP Jet Black. Um, but the, the Stranglers were playing. They had a, there was a much taller stage in the Oasis. And again, I mean, it, it was packed. It was absolutely crowded. But again, there was a spitting problem. And um, there was a comment about stopping spitting and it didn't stop. And the next thing we saw, 
was two roadies dragging a fan onto the stage who had obviously been picked out by the band as the, the major culprit. And they took his trousers off and threw them into the audience. And so, the, and so you know, talking about teaching a guy a lesson, he was just left to wander away um, semi-naked. And I, A, I remember it because I saw it, but it's pretty infamous because it got a, it got a small column inch on the front page of the Daily Telegraph. <laughs> The fan had his trousers <laughs> removed at a gig, at a Stranglers gig in Swindon. <laughs> Is this the scene you remember, Paul? It was the, the yeah. The other thing I was going to add, Andy, is do you remember um, Swindon Viewpoint? Oh so yeah, the, absolutely. They used to, to be Viewpoint on the radio side, and this was yeah, an independent so, television station, wasn't so, it? Yeah, so it was started, I think, in 1974, and it was um, it was an independent cable television community channel. And the brilliant thing about it was it was it was tested in Swindon. Swindon was the first town where cable television for the community was was put forward for the test. And then the idea was if it was successful, it was going to be rolled out in London, Manchester, etc. So it ran for um, a good number of years. And what was what was important in relation to XTC is they um, there is they filmed footage of the Helium Kids. So there is some some very grainy black and white footage of the Helium Kids Helium Kids playing in the studio. <laughs> prior to XTC and then later XTC. Um, but the, 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 because it was a community television show, it meant that you could approach them and you could have your own ideas of making uh, either making music videos or television programmes or, or just anything arty. Um, so some of this still exists. If you Google Swindon Viewpoint, um, there's a website, and I don't know if you're aware of this, Mark, but you can, you can kind of download original XTC black and white footage of them playing demos in the studio and of the Helium kids playing in the studio there. So, I mean, I played in a really terrible band called the Early Bathers and um, we we actually approached them and made a music video, uh, which they paid for completely. It was filmed on Watchfield Aerodrome, um, took about three three minutes to film. I think it was one take, one cameraman, and... Um, but it's it's kind of up there as well on the archives. But that was really important for Swindon. That a lot of local bands. There's a band called Urban Disturbance. There were kind of um, Jelly Tots, all sorts of kind of local bands, um, and most of them either either made recordings through Swindon Viewpoint. Um, so you can still see it on the website. The other thing I say about XTC is they were very supportive to local bands. So XTC had their own rehearsal and recording studio in the basement of the town hall, Swindon Town Hall which I think was run by, um, I know Steve Warren, who you mentioned earlier, Bev, was involved in that. Um, and there was someone else called Dave James, who was a local kind of Swindon singer, songwriter. And he he used to work with XTC in their recording studio, basically doing demos for them. Um, so he'd be an interesting person to track down. If, if, if Dave's still around, he, he could be interesting for a future podcast. Yeah, I don't know him. Um, the other thing I'd like to say is just how important Barry Andrews was at that time. Um, I mean, when in my mind, and I'm sure in a lot of people's minds, there are two XTCs. There's Barry Andrews XTC and Dave Gregory XTC, and they were very, very different bands live, certainly. And Barry just, I mean, Barry just had this kind of urgency and, and kind of craziness about him when he played live. He'd often wear T-shirts like, I ain't never been to art <laughs> school, or, you know, he'd spray paint. I mean, he, he really brought, I mean, a lot has been spoken about his favourite, you know, his keyboard setup, you know, of the of kind of wires hanging out and it being, you know, 
breaking down halfway through gigs. My memory of his keyboard setup was it seemed to be on wheels. He seemed to, when he played live, the, the keyboard sort of moved all mm. around the stage, and he sort of was running around trying to keep up with the keyboard. <laughs> and he put it up on its end, and he st- he put his leg on it like Jerry Lee Lewis, and he'd um, there was all bottles of beer hitting it, and it was just so exciting live to watch. Um, and uh, there's an interesting story with Barry. Years later, um, I was I was asked to do a photograph of of, some, of a new band in London called The Vales, and I went and met them in a pub to talk about the photo session. And there was a singer called Finn, uh, called Finn Andrews, and I said, "Oh, where are you from, then, Finn?" And he said, "Oh, um, well, my dad was in a band from Swindon called XTC." <laughs> so it turned out, so this so this made me feel really old because I was I was sat in a pub with a sort of twenty three year old you know um, Barry Andrews' son. Uh, but they're a great band. If you ever get a chance to listen to the Vales, um, I think Finn's the singer, uh, and he's—they're uh, great. But um, now I'd just like to—I always big up Barry Andrews' period of XTC because it was—it was. I think they made some great records. I'm not a fan of Super Tough, um, and uh, what's what's that other one on Go? My Weapon, which is the, possibly the worst song ever recorded by XTC. <laughs> but um, uh, Barry obviously went on to be in Shriekback. You know, really interesting kind of bass bass-driven um, band, uh, which I loved as well. So I'll shut up about Barry, but that, that's my, you know, I, laying my cards on the table. My favourite XTC is, is Barry, <laughs> is the Barry period. I think it might have been something that Tony said, possibly something that Bev said in print, um, about the sort of development of XTC into a, you know, a fighting unit, if you if, if you can use that phrase, you know, a sort of Premier League band um, and... Was there was some comment that I think it might have been Stuart Copeland saying, "Hey, you need to be doing more of a show or something like that." There was some, uh, you know, and 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 do you have a memory of them developing from the stage that that Paul and Andy are talking about into a, a such a tight unit that I, I saw them in a couple of times in the early eighties. So and and they were phenomenal then. But um, did you see that development taking place before your eyes? Is that to me? I suppose it could be, but I suppose it's to you as actually seeing as Bev has been the back, a backing singer of XTC, I think you can have the <laughs> you <right>. can comment too. <laughs> yeah, but I actually played with the band. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, I see one-upmanship. There you go. Yeah, I also re- uh, played on a Barry Andrews Town and Country EP. Just oh, did out you? Of interest? Yeah. <laughs> I forgotten that. I didn't know. Yeah, that. me and Dave Fudger and I, Dave Fudger also from Sounds, we were just invited to to lay down a bit of a guitar. Um, it was it was a crazy concept. Uh, I can't even remember what the track title was, but that was the EP. Sorry, Bev, carry on. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean I I was going to say, uh, Paul, I I was a big Barry Andrews fan as well from the early days. I was really sad when he left because you're right, he just brought such a unique sound to the band, and I didn't really know how they were going to replace him. But obviously they did, and I loved what they did after that. But those early days, I mean, absolutely incredible. I thought, I mean, I just hadn't heard anything like it at all. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, his 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 playing was completely anarchic uh, in keyboard hmm. terms. No one was doing that. I mean, I I I actually uh, studied classical piano as a kid, and you know, I had a rough idea of where the notes were on the keyboard, and I just didn't know how how Barry managed to do what he did because there didn't seem to be any great logic behind it. He just seemed to 
to hit some keys and it came out right. And it was absolutely, uh, an absolutely unique sound as far as I recall. And I don't think, you know, I think they were very wise to not try to replace him with another keyboard player because I don't think any other keyboard player uh, could have made the same impact. And uh, I, I greatly ad admired him. Although, just, just to pay a quick tribute to Swindon um you know at the time when three quarters of the band were from Swindon and and then all of them were um I mean I don't think XTC could have been XTC without Swindon I think it it had to come from Swindon and I, I think that's you know I think that Swindon can be proud of that I really do thank you 100%. The, the, two, the two of you who are from Swindon, uh, at the recent convention, a friend and I were talking about how um, every time you see XTC being interviewed, that almost inevitably they will refer to Swindon and, and, and it's sort of a sort of chip on your shoulder type of thing of, of kind of wishing that they, uh, believing that they've been looked down upon by the rest of the world. I mean, is that something that, that you grew up with and still recognise yourselves? Uh, yeah, yep. absolutely. And, and I, I mean, <laughs> comics use Swindon as a throwaway joke, don't they? You know, I, I got on a train the other day to go to Bristol and pass through Swindon and the crowd were all with laughter. <laughs> and it really gets my goat because it's, you know, I mean, I've, I've lived here all my life. It's nothing more than a working class town. I don't think it has any pretensions. You know, we've had a couple of great um, stars come out of it. You know, um, Justin Hayward, Gilbert O'Sullivan. Diana Dawes, um, not many. Um, but I think some people like to think that it tries to get above its station. I, all I'll all I say is it's better than Slough. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to just tick off your, your dodgy towns. Come friendly bombs and fall on Slough. <laughs> isn't it mentioned in the office as well? It is, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Office, isn't yeah. yeah. I think so. I mean, the, X, the thing is, XTC were very proud of coming from Swindon, but they did play along with the joke as well. Mm. I mean, in that in that piece I wrote, interview I did in New York, Andy said, oh, we, we're thinking about coming on, on stage in tractors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a great level of self-awareness in that band. You know, they, they could be completely self deprecatory or or you know they they would happily slag off other musicians you know as well they weren't a, they weren't a, you know above that um so that, that they just had a, such a great range you know such a great range could i ask a question about the album title um so i was um i also was led to believe that the album was originally going to be called black music is that does anyone know heard of this i have read that yeah 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 and the and the and Virgin said no, you can't call it that because people think it's going to be a whatever a reggae album or something. Yeah, a soul band. <laughs> yeah, that rings a bell. That rings a bell. Yeah, yeah. Now, would you would you dare call an album white music? Now, you probably wouldn't, would you? Probably not. But I've got a white music T-shirt, and my wife doesn't like me wearing it mm, when I go out. Yeah, yeah. There you, are. You, you know, I mean, times have changed, and people would be likely to misinterpret it, wouldn't they? Unless they happen to be XTC fans. But I think Tony, you put your finger on it before. I think that that uh, XTC have a sense of yes. Englishness, and I I am talking as somebody who lives in Scotland, so I'm talking about. But it's like a. Um, a Wiltshireness, really. It's it's like a, it's a very very specific thing. They know exactly what they mean, and it's not about um, the National Front. It's not about 
um, a dislike of foreigners, it's, but it's just a very specific awareness of where they're from and, and, and what that means historically, ancient yes. history, local, recent history, and so on. Um, but it, but that in the modern world, that can get lost and confused. Yes, yes. Very much not from that London. <laughs> from that London, yeah. As, yeah. as Stuart Lee would say, that London. Yeah. yeah. That London. I suppose my last question then, because it's been fantastic having this conversation, uh, it's it's fantastic to 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 um, be nostalgic and remember that period that we've been talking about. But um, Bev and Tony, in particular, do, do they does that music still stand up in your imagination? Does it, are you are you still a fan of the band? Oh, hundred percent. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I got in there got in there quick, didn't I, Tony? Ladies first. No, that's a correct. That's a correct. As long as it's a correct answer, that's fine by me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I I um I bought us. I don't often buy CDs anymore, but uh, like most people, I suppose. But um, I did buy an XTC uh, a CD. Uh, it's probably greatest hits or B sides or something. Maybe it was B sides um, a few years ago to to play in the car, and um, it's just it all came flooding back to me. I, I mean, I hadn't really actively listened to anything they'd done for for quite some time, and but it was just like you know. It just reminded me just how important they were and how good they were and how much fun I had with them, you know. I mean, it was such a privilege, really, to be a music journalist at that time, you know. I mean, I think I believe it's very different now. Um, but Bev and I were both lucky enough to be in, in that business at a time when, you know, record companies would fly you halfway around the world in the hope of just getting a bit of publicity, you know, Um and um, and they did. I mean, it worked, uh, but <laughs> you know, I don't think it happens so much anymore. That that kind of stuff. So, the opportunity is not. It's not the job it used to be, as far as I know. Just throw something in there because you're talking about effectively coming back to XTC as a band. I don't think a lot of their music is dated. No, you're right. It has a. I think it's got a remarkably contemporary sound to it. Um, and maybe that's because of the bands they've influenced. I don't know. But whenever I hark back to it, you think, you know, some of this or a lot of this could have been recorded last week or last year. My, my theory about that is that it was because it was never fashionable in the first place. It sort of never yeah. got out of fashion. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, you might very yeah. well be right, yeah. Mark. And ahead of its time, perhaps. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was, at the same, it was at the same, it was kind of modern, but timeless at the same, mm. in the same moment almost. Uh, and they they played with this wonderful dissonance that you didn't always hear at that time, um, and it didn't have any of the awful production stuff that you later got on eighties music that really dated it. I, I just I've had a, a fantastic time just listening into this conversation. Um, we could get, go on and on, but all good podcasts have to come to an end. So thank you very very much, uh, Bev, Tony, Andy, Paul, and uh, Jill. I've loved doing this and. Let's do it again sometime. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah. Thank you very much, Thank gentlemen and ladies. Last. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Mark. Take care. Bye-bye. What do you call that noise? Thank you very much again to Tony Mitchell, Jill Fermanovsky, Beverly Glick, Paul Burgess, and Andy Poulton for such a brilliant chat. Great of you to do that. And um, thank you, of course, to everyone who has supported the podcast on Patreon, who you can join at patreon.com forward slash Mark Fisher. 
thanks in particular to the following Knights in Shining Karma. Terry Arnott, John Bicknell, Kevin Burt, Lorenzo Chachi, Hale Corbett, Liam Duggan, Jamie Dunn, Jeff Farris, Leslie Gooch, Robert Graham, Stephen Hope, Alan Hughes, Marek Krauss, Jesper Kumberg, Robert Lawlor, Dennis LaCouria, Liz Lynch, Murray Meikle, Yusuf Murrah, Karen Neal, Amy Parkinson, Mark Weed, James Reimer, Simon Slatom, Michael Sutcliffe, Mark Thomas, Nigel Waller, and Martin Whitley. Thanks to all of you, and thanks for listening. Until next time. <laughs>